come here and talk about frostbite, but I felt it was time to talk about something different. So I hope you'll enjoy this. Um, I've got a couple of disclosures. Um, I work with a company called Sarissa, and you'll hear a little bit more about that in a moment. Um, Joe Bradwell, when I first introduced myself in Birmingham, where I was trying to do some altitude research, uh, listened to my introduction, and after about five minutes, he said, what do you do? I said, I'm a surgeon. And his comment was, I'd never met an intelligent surgeon. <laughs> and I'm sure I'm not going to disappoint you. Um, so what's my background? I'm a vascular, renal, transplant, and trauma surgeon. Uh, I suppose I've in, called myself a translational physiology physiologist, trying to understand things from extreme environments and how they relate to our patients. And I also have a particular interest in cerebral perfusion. So what are we going to talk about? I'm going to do a little bit of history because it does place a lot of what we've done in context. I'm going to talk a little bit about some biochemistry, and it looks a bit dry, but it's going to be better than it sounds, I promise. Um, talk about carotid surgery, talk about high-altitude cerebral pathologies, and introduce the concept of extreme altitude cerebral dysfunction, which is a relatively novel concept. I think it's been around for a long time, but perhaps it hasn't been put together this way. So I want you to go back in time to the 1850s to 70s, try and imagine what life was like. This is over 100 years ago. Clothes were different. This is, uh, the ships were different. This is laying the first transatlantic uh, telegraph line. Just down the road from here, at the Surgeon's Hall, there was a riot that occurred in 1870. And this was when seven women tried to sit a medical exit exam. Uh, and there was a lot of protest. There was a feeling that women shouldn't be doctors. So that's an important step forward. And then there was the Battle of Crimea. Uh, Ch Charles Darwin put out The Origin of Species. So we're sort of beginning to go back in time. The big uh, interest at that time was the space race equivalent, and that was hot air ballooning. Um, and across two countries in particular, uh, England and France, there was a race. Uh, the French here you can see in, in a, a balloon called the Zenith, which I'm going to talk about in a moment, uh, and the British um, not uh, being uh, standing back. Here, here you can see the Union Jack uh, balloon. Uh, this is a, an exhibition in Kew where they were getting together um, some of the equipment to heat the balloons. And the next little clip that's going to come up is actually very fortuitous. It's a real-life story. Um, and if we've got sound, it should be... So 
this extraordinary journey, uh, which has just been filmed for a, a film called The Aeronauts, uh, actually started uh, at the Wolverhampton Gasworks. Um, and here, two guys, Glacier and Coxwell, took off in 1862 in a hot air balloon. Uh, they set off, uh, and somewhere around about 28, 29,000 feet, things started to get really rather misty and weren't, weren't going very well. Uh, Glacier wrote... Uh, I laid my arm upon the table, possessed of its full vigour, but found, uh, being desirous of using it, I found it powerless. And in fact, they had to uh, let the air out of the balloon and descend um, by using their teeth, apparently. And, but they landed, uh, they recovered well, and they were about 14 miles away and walked back to Wolverhampton. So a good outcome. The French, a couple of years later, were not so successful. This is their balloon, Zenith, uh, and they set off in 1873... Um, flew very high indeed, considerably higher than they did uh, in, in the uh, British balloon. But unfortunately, uh, they lost control. And you can see here, actually, in the um, balloon basket, the, them lying unconscious there. And they crashed, and two of them died. And they published a, a little article in the Nature. This is now a big journal, but then it was a relatively small thing. And what they said um, was that uh, Tissandi attributes it to the vertigo of, high, vertigo of high regions. The pain is so small that one forgets the danger in wishing to reach a higher level. So he's not able to restrain himself and is not fitted to be an aeronite in high regions. So they're beginning to understand that things aren't quite right, but there's nothing quite to explain what's going on. So let's talk about cerebral metabolism. I did promise you a little bit of biochemistry um, and physiology. The brain accounts for 2% of the total body weight, but gets 15% of the cardiac output and 20 to 25% of the body oxygen consumption and utilization. There are no reserves, which means that as you run out, you'll uh, become unconscious. There's a fairly complicated autoregulation system that remains sure that over normal um, pressures and uh, inspired oxygen levels that you'll get decent oxygen delivery to the brain. And I'm not really going to go through that in detail, but the lack of this uh, delivery of oxygen to the brain does have serious consequences. There are certain adaptive features that take place when you go to altitude, so the low uh, inspired oxygen levels le leads to certain uh, adaptations that allow you to uh, survive there. You see an increased heart rate, uh, increased uh, ventilation rate and change in hematocrit. And there are also brain-specific things where you see uh, increased cerebral blood flow to maintain the cerebral oxygen delivery. But it also can go wrong because of the fixed size of the uh, cranial vault and you can run into uh, raised intracranial pressures and uh, high-altitude cerebral edema. As you exercise you actually reduce the oxygen delivery still further. So one of the common features of um, cerebral dysfunction is a lack of oxygen delivery to the brain. And this occurs in all sorts of different situations. ATP is the universal currency of energy. Um, and when you are, have a lack of oxygen to the brain and you start to have cerebral dysfunction, you see a gradual build-up of AMP and ADP. So... What, what I'm saying is that in normal situations, the ATP supply balances its demand. So up in the top corner there, you can see that. Um, but as one runs out of oxygen, we gradually see uh, the amount of oxygen that's available decrease, and the cerebral function also starts to diminish. And you start to see dysfunction of the, uh, of the, um, of the nerve 
cells, and you start to see the problems that um, we saw in the balloonists. So we set up a little study, and this is um, to explain, again, sound. So my name is Christian Ray, I'm a vascular and renal transplant surgeon at UHCW, and I've been working for the last five years with Nick Dale on this particular project. What we're trying to do is come up with a quicker and easier way of diagnosing a stroke. Currently we use CT scan and MRs. And what we've done is to try to expedite the patient's movement through the system is to use a fingerprint test. Uh, this is a point of care test, gives us immediate answer. This is a great team effort uh, between the NHS, the university, business, NIHR and MedTech, which I think will have big impacts for patients. So this was a, a test that we set up to try to diagnose strokes at an earlier stage. We're using carotid endarterectomy as a model for uh, cerebral hypoxia in strokes, but it's also useful in terms of altitude issues. So you perform it. We can often perform it under local anaesthetic, and you clamp the blood supply to the brain, which obviously reduces the cerebral oxygen delivery. And then there are a series of things that can happen to the patient as you're doing this. Um, you're getting, beginning to move down that curve, so there's a reduction in the oxygen supply, so the cell, cellular integrity is being challenged. And although at, in normal situations the balance works well between the, re, um, the uh, ATP and ADP, when you start to run out of oxygen, you uh, see a, a, a change in the balance and you get purines that we can measure in the blood. And that's what this test is measuring. So in the carotid model, what we were doing was clamping the carotid, and you can see here in the top graph there, that's the concentration of purines. You can see the clamp going on, a sudden rise in the purines, and that's kept happening within a couple of minutes. And this is in an arterial line, um, and then it drops back down again once the operation's been completed. While you're doing this operation, you can actually talk to the patients, and you start off, and they're often quite chatty, um, new, initiating new lines of conversation, but gradually they get a sense of humour failure, which is not perhaps surprising with their neck wide open and you're talking to them. Um, then they get a very rigid conversation. They're rather restricted in what they can do. Then they become monosyllabic with their answers until finally they get loss of motor power uh, and they become unconscious. And this is not dissimilar to what's happening when you go to extreme altitude. You go through this stage degradation as the oxygen delivery um, begins to uh, reduce below the function required. You can operating, you can put a shunt in there, and that involves putting a piece of tubing that runs from the, below the blockage to above it, and that restores them very quickly to talking again. But also you can see here in the graph at the bottom the insertion of a shunt dropping down the purines that you're measuring almost immediately as they wake up and start talking to you again. So what's this got to do with altitude? George Rodway wrote a, an article looking at uh, decision-making at extreme altitude and has anyone seen my executive function? And we wrote back saying this is not dissimilar to the loss of uh, cerebral function that you see during carotid surgery. If one ascends to altitude, there are a number of different things that occur to the brain and how it functions. And there are two different scenarios. There's the explosive decompression, where you suddenly ascend to altitude and you become unconscious quite quickly. And that was what we were hearing about in the balloonists. And then there's a more gradual uh, ascent to altitude, where what happens is, is you can get some of the high-altitude illnesses, high-altitude headaches, uh, acute mountain sickness, and high-altitude cerebral edema. 
we go back in time again, this is the 1930s. It took, there was an advert that uh, uh, advertised getting to Singapore in just eight days, um, which sounds remarkable. But they were landing in all sorts of places. And one of the stop-offs was Cairo. You can see this plane landing uh, there. Um, but as they went higher, the pilots began to work out there were problems. And this is handwriting at different altitudes. At sea level, the handwriting is relatively neat. But uh, when one gets to 25,000 feet, uh, which is the sort of level some of these planes were trying to fly at, you can see some of the degradation that's occurring in the writing. So as we got into the 40s and 50s, there was a rapidly changing aircraft technology with planes going up into 50,000, 60,000 uh, feet. And here, the individual uh, approach to this was quite complicated. You can see this early uh, pressurised suit to try to keep them in, in, in shape. Um, and there's a wonderful article uh, that you can get off the internet at looking, called Dressing for Altitude uh, from NASA, and I commend that to you if you're interested in this sort of thing. There were some pretty radical experiments there that went on. Uh, this is actually um, a, a, um, a photograph taken in a penitentiary in the States. Um, they were asking for volunteers um, who were inmates, and they had this pressurised system that they could put over the carotid arteries uh, and then instantaneously uh, press a button and occlude the carotid arteries by going above systolic pressure. And what they were measuring is how long it took them to become unconscious. Uh, and this was giving them insights into what was going on. There was an interesting letter that was written by the uh, prison physician um, in which he said, um, in this connection, I wish to state, as far as I can determine, there were no bad after-effects of any kind. In conversation with several of the men tested, they said they experienced no untoward effects. They seemed very enthusiastic about the whole thing because they thought they contributed to the, the, their bit towards the war effort. They were practically unanimous in their assertion they would be, be prepared to submit to further tests if called upon to do so. I'm not sure quite how much freedom was involved in this and whether one would get this through ethics these days, but it is an interesting insight. Climbing these high mountains is a significant attrition rate. The highest mountain, Everest, does not have the highest attrition rate. That's K2 and Annapurna. And what goes wrong? I mean, there are a whole series of things in which one's much more familiar with, and that's uh, the altitude illnesses that I've talked about. But there's also a real problem with the way the brain's functioning. There's good evidence that um, various things like arithmetic and memory deteriorates, sleep disturbance, there's short-term memory decline, there's motor skills, psychological changes. It seems that older people are more susceptible to the damaging, and they're also making very poor decisions sometimes, and there may be long-term brain injury. And this is all because we're beginning to slide over that curve into the area where the cells are not able to function normally. Now, if you're going to go into a dangerous environment and you have already got your brain that's essentially uh, significantly hampered in how you're going to behave, you might expect things to start to go wrong. Okay, and a bit more video. This is on Everest. Sure is a stark reminder of just how little they understand about the effects of high altitude on the human body and the life-threatening symptoms it can produce. It's been a very dramatic day, so we've split ourselves into a medical rescue team and a scientific team here, such that we can do our work and we can also rescue people safely from the mountain. Off we go. 60 RPM, please. At this altitude, even the simple things don't come easily. This neuropsychological test is straightforward to complete at sea level, but here Nigel is struggling.
the brain is so badly affected, many climbers return with permanent damage. To counter these effects, all those conducting the tests use supplementary oxygen. Did a little study, medical students from Warwick uh, Medical School did a, a little study a while ago looking at um, risk-taking behaviour. They're using a balloon analogue risk task. And what you do in this task is you keep... Pre it's a computerised game and you keep pressing a button until you think the, the balloon is so large that it might burst. And then you stop. So if you're feeling bold uh, and you're prepared to take risks, you might blow up the balloon further until it pops. What they found here is the blue line there represents what happened at sea level. Uh, that's the control. And the risk-taking is fairly uh, static. But the orange one, which is in a hypoxic chamber, and the green one, which is on a mountain, you can see that there is an increase in the risk-taking behaviour. And interestingly, at the same levels, because there are equivalent altitudes, risk-taking seems greater in the mountains than it does in a hypoxic chamber. And again, I'm not sure what the basis for that is. So if we look at the high-altitude cerebral pathologies that we're familiar with, high-altitude headache is common. Most people will get it when they go to altitude. Acute mountain sickness will have symptoms uh, of malaise, a nausea, dizziness, um, but is usually self-limiting, and particularly if you don't go up any further. And then there's high-altitude cerebral edema, where you've got ataxia, so you start to get neurological signs. And you get altered level of consciousness, coma, and could be death. And I'd like to introduce an, a, a different, an additional concept, and that's one of extreme altitude cerebral dysfunction. And so you can imagine, as we've been going through this, that the climber who's going slowly up the mountain can suddenly run out of oxygen uh, or could um, start to exercise harder and actually just tip themselves over that balance, that little curve on the balance on the graph we saw. So this is haste. A bit of video clippage. A climber from another team is struggling to make the last few metres before camp. He could barely move. All the time, he, he's breathing as hard and as fast as he can, but just having complete air hunger and feeling that nothing's going on. You combine that with somebody who's got this single thought in his mind that if he continues to follow this rope, he's one step nearer reaching the summit of Everest. Actually, all he was doing was climbing closer and closer to death. So we did a study looking at deaths on Everest um, between 1921 and 2006. Um, a total of 212 deaths in that period of time. Uh, and on this graph here, you can see that there's a red line. Below the red line, um, we're below 8,000 metres, uh, and here the deaths are predominantly amongst the Sherpas, and that's because they're going through the icefall, which is very dangerous, and they're doing it multiple times, carrying loads higher up. But as one gets above 8,000 metres, then it tends to be the Westerners that are dying, uh, and they uh, are, are doing very poorly. If you look at the arrival on the summit um, of survivors, so these are the people that make it down, they're making the, the top by about 9.30, 10 o'clock in the morning. If you look at the non-survivors who die on the way down, they're making the top somewhere around three or four in the afternoon. So even the point at which you arrive on the summit is probably going to determine what happens to you over the next few hours. And if you look amongst the, the people, the Westerners who are dying, they t tend to die from neurological dysfunction, 
um, which has originally been called high-altitude cerebral edema, but I would suggest some of it will be uh, extreme cere uh, high-altitude uh, cerebral dysfunction. Um, but this is a common feature. So let's talk a little bit more about extreme altitude cerebral dysfunction. This happened this year, so this is 15th of May 2018. There was a whole series of oxygen failures on the north side. There was some faulty batch, uh, and all of a sudden uh, the climbers, and the westerners who are particularly vulnerable, were being deprived of their oxygen. So you might imagine that they're starting to slip down that curve uh, where the cells would start to dysfunction. Fortunately, there was enough people around and uh, masks and spare oxygen that no one came, did badly. Um, or most people didn't do badly, but there were a couple that didn't do well. And this is uh, out of the Times. Uh, interesting, the two things from uh, in, in the Times on that particular day. One was about the Everest death zone, and the, the other one was the superhuman Sherpas, who have a, a, an amazing way of de um, dealing with this, but we might talk about that later if we have time. So in this article, it was commented, the common causes of death include altitude-related illnesses complicated by poor decision-making when symptoms first appear. In other words, turn back immediately upon any sign of sickness. This is known, but very few people follow it. This was out of the Times a couple of days ago. K2 climber, this is an Irish climber, saved woman on return from the summit. And as they were coming down, he uh, spotted a Japanese woman in, uh, from a different team trying to uh, unclip herself from the safety ropes because she, in his words, lost her mind due to severe oxygen depletion. So again, the brain is on this tightrope and just a slight change in balance of oxygen um, delivery and consumption can tip them into this situation where they're becoming like that local anaesthetic carotid patient. They're losing their sense of humour. They're beginning to become monosyllabic. They're making poor decisions. And eventually they are unconscious. There was a fantastic paper um, from Matt Wilkes and Mike Tipton uh, looking at the physiology of uh, paragliding at moderate and extreme altitudes. And here what Matt uh, did was look at heart rates, um, pulse oximetry, etc., during different phases of moderate altitude and extreme altitude hang gliding simulation. So you can see on the far side, that's the moderate altitude, and on the near side of this graph, this is ex extreme altitude. And the first bit, the top bit there, is the heart rate, and you can see the highest heart rate um, is at extreme altitude just as you're taking off. There's a huge amount of energy used to get off the mountain. Uh, to, to run, and that's where you have, uh, you're using up the oxygen for the muscles. Once you've taken off, then things settle down, and the individual can start to focus more on the, uh, on the flight. And I suspect the cerebral oxygen delivery gets more in balance with the cerebral oxygen demand. As he says in the paper, most accidents appear to be secondary errors of piloting or judgment rather than equipment failure, and it remains a relatively high-risk uh, pursuit. Um, Future research should focus on enhancing cognitive function, reducing mental workload. I'm not sure how you do that, but reducing mental workload and improving environmental protection. Um, so this is a video clip um, from 7,500 metres on Shishampanga. Shishampanga is the 14th highest mountain in the, in the world uh, and sits uh, just inside Tibet. <laughs>
So he's at his most dangerous now. But it's all gone well. And his oxygen consumption from the rest of the body is now going to get back in balance. He's going to start to be able to celebrate again. And uh, makes a successful and safe landing at the end. So just to sort of pull this together a little bit more, haste we're much more familiar with. It's a slower onset. Um, it usually takes a few days to occur. They'll often get headaches and get raised intracranial pressure and may develop uh, cerebral edema. It's not reversed immediately with oxygen. It's certainly an important treatment component, but it's not reversed immediately, and one would uh, go for oxygen, dexamethasone, and descent. In terms of extreme altitude cerebral dysfunction, this um, sort of is overlaid on top of that. And it can be very rapid in onset, as we've seen in the balloonists uh, and in the uh, flight uh, simulations. In immediate, and in, in also in terms of carotid surgery, it, there's unlikely to be edema. Um, the ICP probably doesn't change, and it's reversed rapidly with oxygen, and dexamethasone is unlikely to um, help. It's highly likely that the two can coexist and there could be a continuum. But you need to think of how you're looking after your brain and what you're doing to maintain your cerebral oxygen delivery under these challenging circumstances. And every time you rush or, or run or push yourself really hard, you're probably reducing cerebral oxygen delivery, pushing yourself slightly closer to making those poor decisions. So in summary, we've looked a bit of history. We've talked about cerebral blood flow. We've talked about rate of exposure, absolute altitude. We had some insights from carotid surgery and talked about cerebral pathologies. We talked about hypoxia and cognitive function. It is important to understand that older people seem to be more susceptible to this and introduced a concept which I'm sure has been around for years but has pulled it together right um, into to extreme altitude cerebral dysfunction. Just before I finish, um, there are lots of stories of people making poor decisions in the mountain. This is Herman Bull, who uh, was... Uh, climbed a Nanga Parbat but subsequently died on Chongaliza as he fell through a, a, um, a um, through the snow on the edge of the, the mountain um, we're running a study um, in Coventry, we're doing a, this is a phase one study, we're going to take healthy individuals, um, put them in a, hypo a hypoxic environment 12%, about 4,000 4, metres we're going to do MR scans before and during and then after the exposure. But at about eight hours, we're going to give them a shot of intravenous dexamethasone or um, saline in an attempt to try to understand this in a bit more detail. So if there are any people up to 35, 20 to 35, who are interested in taking part in this study, do get in touch with either Ruth or myself. Um, we've also recently set up the Global and Altitude Metabolic Research Registry based down at the RGS and in Coventry. And if any of you are going on extended trips either to the polar regions or going very high, we're interested in trying to understand um, what happens to your metabolism. So please do get in touch about that. We're absolutely delighted that the Ice Maidens are here to talk about their amazing trip across um, Antarctica. And we were very privileged to have them in the chamber and do some interesting studies with them. And then finally, um, I've had a 30-year project uh, on the go, 
um, trying to climb the seven summits. I've got one to go. It's Mount Vincent down in Antarctica. If you would like to support the Circulation Foundation, which is a charity looking after um, people with peripheral vascular disease, do feel free to contribute. Thank you very much indeed, and I'm happy to take any questions.